This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman, New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. We're really excited you're here, and we're even more excited to talk about a fascinating topic today. How are things going for you, Bob? They're going pretty well, Frank. Um, I just got back from my coronary calcium scan, so I'm eager to see if the thousands of dietary supplements I take every day have any difference on my plaque, which uh, hopefully they will. I'm, I've had pretty good scores in the past, so uh, my fingers are crossed. I'm sure they will. You know, I had a coronary score test many, many, many years ago, which was terrible, which sort of woke me up. I did it once at a, actually a functional, maybe in a functional medicine somewhere in Arizona and it sort of woke me up and I started on this path of supplements and that and actually believe it or not it reversed quite a bit which is unusual yeah that's not supposed to happen you're supposed to be dependent on statins the rest of your life yeah so that's good and then I had a CIMT score test recently which is pretty good so I think the supplements do help I think you're going to make it Frank phew thank you thank you (laughs) so Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. we got a real treat today. We actually have a guest, our first guest ever on the podcast, Dr. Jacqueline Jocks, a naturopathic doctor and an expert in nutrition and chief medical officer of CB2 Therapeutics. So Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, thank you uh, to both of you gentlemen. Um, I didn't realize I was the first ever guest. I feel really honored and special. So thanks. (laughs) I didn't know that until just this moment. Um, Welcome. welcome. I I don't know that you need to say much more about me. Uh, I am a doctor of naturopathic medicine, graduated way back when from uh, National University of Natural Medicine. As you already said, I spent a lot of my time working in the nutrition industry and about 13 years of that time in the obesity industry. More recently, have been part of Thorn Research, which you're familiar with, and then now CB2 Therapeutics, which is actually a joint venture between Thorn Research and a Canadian company called Tetra Biopharma. And we are very specifically involved in, I think, some things we're going to talk about today, but our, our mission is to develop novel therapeutics that act via the endocannabinoid system. So what is CB2? What is, what's the significance of that name? It's actually CB2, and I, I don't know how much we'll, we'll talk about some of the things like cannabinoid receptors today, but one of the two primary receptors in the endocannabinoid system is the CB2 receptor. And that is what is commonly thought of as the more peripheral receptor. So our focus is really not looking at compounds that act on the CB1 receptor, but on the CB2 receptor or some other associated things. So let's get into the main discussion because, I mean, I use CBD a lot. And so the question I get asked all the time is what's the difference between CBD, hemp, THC, 
and now there are all these CBD strains, there's CBN, there's, so what the hell's going on? Well, it's always, when I get asked a question like this, Frank, um, a question I always ask myself is, where do I start? So I'm going to start talking, and if I've started in the wrong place, you guys interrupt me and let me know, okay? <laughs> so the first thing we have is cannabis, right? Cannabis is a plant. Um, it goes by many other names. I think our readers probably, or listeners probably know what a lot of those names are, so I'm not going to list them all. But commonly, there's two forms of cannabis that are grown or cultivated. One of those is hemp. And the other one is commonly called marijuana, but they're really the same plant. Genetically, they are the exact same thing, but they're grown in different environments, which produces different results. So the marijuana plant is usually grown in crops of largely female plants and is very heavy in flowers on the plant and is very dominant in a cannabinoid called THC um, or tetrahydrocannabidiol. The hemp plant, usually grown in different kind of environment, can also be taller and um, with longer stalks, but sometimes it actually is short and flowery, just like marijuana plants. But it is dominant in a different chemical or different cannabinoid called cannabidiol or CBD. And technically, from the federal government standpoint, so there's politics involved in plants nowadays, um, but... uh, The federal government has defined the difference between the two types of cannabis by the chemicals in them. So basically, hemp is defined as having a THC level at or below 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis, meaning the only thing that really differentiates these from a legal standpoint is either the amount of THC or the amount of CBD. So now that THC is becoming legal in most states, even in New York, mm. laws just even in New York. Uh, yeah, you just uh, did that. Congratulations, New York. Thank you. There you it go. Took a while. So <laughs> yep. what? So it's been interesting because I've been using CBD now for a while. Some people respond. I mean, some people seem to respond to different CBD plants uh, from various companies different doses. I mean, it seems to be such an individual response to what type of CBD, if they're different types, they're all called CBD, mm-hmm. and to different dosages. How do you, how does someone work out what's right for them? So that's a really hard question. When it comes to the chemicals, CBD is CBD, whether it's grown in the hemp plant, whether it's synthesized in a lab, whether it's grown in yeast molecules, it's CBD. THC, same thing, synthetic, otherwise, it's the same chemical. But cannabis, like other plants, is a chemical factory. There are something like over 800 cannabinoids that have been identified. Then you have flavonoids and you have terpenoids, you have all these bioactives. So if you're just walking into a dispensary somewhere and you're buying a cannabis product, depending on the growing environment, depending on how it's been extracted, depending on how it's been honestly held and processed. So if it's been held in a warehouse a long time, the chemical makeup, even if it's got the same absolute amount of CBD or THC, is they're not going to be the same. Does that make sense? And these chemicals, the chemicals interact. Is that what you're saying? Well, some of them interact, but some of them have their own separate effects. Well, that's what I mean. They interact in your body. Yeah. Oh, yes. They interact in your body. They also interact with each other. Uh So you may not get the same thing. And then there's route of administration. We 100% know with cannabis products, it is not the same if you use them orally, if you use them in an edible, if you 
smoke them, if you vaporize them. So actually vaporizing is different from smoking. If you, I mean, so every route of administration also changes the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So you get a different experience. Well, that, that's interesting. I'll give you a story. A good friend of mine who lives in Jamaica took me to a traditional healer there. Mm -hmm. And I, when I, I went to the traditional healer and the guy said, well, here's a doctor from the West. He showed me about six or seven different plants. And he says, yeah, man, this one's good for lung. This one's good for heart. This one's good to sleep. Each of the different plants were good for different things. That's very interesting. And I like sort of thought, oh, well, that's interesting. But I, I didn't take it that seriously. But so that so that's possible then. Yeah, it's 100% possible. And, you know, a big challenge that we have on a national level is because cannabis is still federally illegal. If you as a physician are recommending any kind of cannabis, a, a, C, a CBD dominant you know, form of cannabis or a THC dominant form, and you're sending them to a dispensary, the people making the recommendations for the products are probably going to be 20 year olds who are going to base their recommendation off of what they experienced when they took something, right? So we lose some things in translation there from what we might want in medicine to the actual experience of what people are, you know, it'd be kind of like if you were recommending uh, supplements to your patient and, you know, you sent them down to the local health food store and they've got the kid who's just working the counter making the recommendations for what vitamins they should take. Well, Jacqueline, this is the big issue everybody's concerned about is this whole market has exploded in the last three to five years. And so a client who says, well, maybe I'll try it, you know, I'll try hemp or I'll try CBD or medical marijuana, whatever. How does a person even begin to know, you know, what to choose and what to pick? I want to say on one level, you don't, but, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really different. I mean, it's very important, actually. I mean, I, Bob, you're in Colorado. Frank, I think you're in New York. I'm in California and have a home in Montana, and every one of those states has different regulations, right? So if you're practicing in your state and you're recommending any cannabis products, CBD, THC, any of them, it's really important that you know what your state requires for testing and um, what kind of products are allowed within your state so that you can help your patients choose if you're counseling them that way. Some states require more testing than other states require. Some people have, some states have restrictions on the kinds of products that are distributed. So it's, it's, it's different from place to place. That's again, another problem with not having a federal umbrella that all of these products fall under is that we're beholden to what each individual state has decided is important. But is that true for hemp oil? I mean, can't you sell hemp oil anywhere? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I don't know how much we want to talk about legalities. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, there was a bill passed in Congress as part of the Agricultural Act that decriminalized hemp. So hemp, again, being cannabis plants that have THC levels at or below. Uh, the law was originally written at 0 0.3, but they're possibly changing that a little bit. But let's just say they're, they're very, very low in THC. What they didn't do was change the FDA's position on the use of cannabinoids. So as far as the FDA is concerned, we still legally cannot have foods and dietary supplements with THC or CBD. We're still waiting on their opinion on some other cannabinoids. So there are, as you said, as, as, as you pointed out, there's a lot of these products out there that are being sold that um, don't necessarily have the oversight that 
you would think of foods and dietary supplements having. So how does a person, a consumer, without any guidance, know where to go, what to choose, how to choose? I think the best advice I can give most people is buy from people, places, and brands that you trust. That is, in this category, probably the single most important thing that you can do. For brands you've heard of, in other words, not from a new brand that just showed up on the internet somewhere. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the other thing is, you know, we've had this explosion of products, right? Yes. And they're all still really new. So any of these, a lot of these companies that have kind of jumped into the hemp space in particular have never manufactured products before. They haven't done extraction. They haven't done holding. They haven't done testing. They haven't had to manufacture under GMP, you know, regulations. So practice makes perfect. Like this is not an easy plant to work with. As I said, it's got a very complex chemistry within this plant. How you handle it from the time it's put in the ground until the time it's put into a form that people could ingest it in some way, it's a lot more complicated than many things that we commonly work with in the dietary supplement industry. So, you know, it matters. So I'm not going to say there's not some very good people and brands and companies that have come into this space, but they are all new. They are largely a new industry. And where, where do pesticides and the, the product being organic, how, how, yeah. how important is that, what the crops are sprayed with or not sprayed with? Well, that that's always important, right? I mean, that's going to be important with everything. And you know, I know that states have now, as they've been submitting their hemp agricultural plans to the USDA, they've had to define what pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals they're using. So until about a year ago, there was no defined list of chemicals that were allowed to be used in growing in cannabis. That's now largely being worked out again on a state-to-state -state level as states submit their plans to the USDA. Is Paraquat still used? I do not know. Yeah. I do not know. I, I, I don't certainly... know if it was used. I think it was used as a maybe to eradicate plants. And so it ended up unintentionally mm. in there. Okay. But I wonder if it's getting into products. There's all kinds of things getting into cannabis. I mean, we could have a whole conversation about this. But one way that hemp plants are actually used is as bioremediators. So they are great for sucking junk out of the environment. <laughs> they will suck petrochemicals. They'll suck lead. They'll suck all kinds of other things out of the environment. So if you're growing environment, and I think, Frank, you asked about organic, is that important? I mean, I think a clean growing environment, organic or not, is probably very important for cannabis if you're going to consume it, because it will collect things. And that's, a, as I said, it's a valuable use of this plant is to remove stuff out of our environment that we don't want. However, if you're then going to ingest it or smoke it or do something else with it, you don't want to take it from the plant and put it in you. One thing I got to say, I don't care where it comes from, smoking is not good. Generally, I, I think, Frank, you would agree with me on this. Is like we're the, any kind of product that we'd endorse would be mm -hmm. something you take orally. So we should do this sometime. We should do a review of the, there's actually a fair amount of data that's been published looking at the biological and physiological effects of smoking and vaping cannabis um, uh -huh. versus using it internally. And I'm just going to tease you with this one so you invite me back to talk about this. But the safety data says it may be safer in many cases to vaporize or smoke cannabis than to ingest it. Even though it's burnt organic material. Yes. Because why? 
Yeah. It's it's does not burn the same way as tobacco or other smoke products. The bioactives in cannabis actually vaporize at a much, much lower temperature than like tobacco smoke does. Uh So it doesn't do the same thing at all. Think of it more akin to using uh, aerosolized drugs like albuterol. Yeah, for asthma. Yeah. Interesting. So so to summarize that, you're saying how you ingest it is not important. Organic is probably important and getting from a trusted brand or brand you know that, that you know has tested for mycotoxins and and other pesticides. If they say it's organic, is that enough? No, I don't think so. I mean, I actually don't. One thing I don't know, I think the USDA has started doing for hemp farming. I think they have started doing organic inspections for hemp farming because they're a national organization. They wouldn't be doing the same with marijuana, even if it's legal in your state yet. There may be other organizations certifying that though. Again, because it's all state by state, I can't quite keep up with every single state set of regulations. Organic doesn't necessarily mean that your crops aren't getting exposure to things from the air, though, that you're not planning for, or that there aren't, say, things in your soil that the plant might absorb that you might be concerned about. So I think I would say clean, you know, making sure the plant is clean. And that that is something that largely has to be determined by laboratory testing. Like we need to really look at this plant after it's been harvested and make sure that we don't have residual pesticides. We don't have like solvents or another big issue, depending mm. on how people are doing extraction. Are you going to have, you know, um, or- yeah, I mean, I've been to a couple of shows and I've seen some of the extraction methods that people are promoting. And you definitely want to be looking at something that's like CO2 or ethanol extracted and not some of these other things, which are, I, I saw somebody doing free on extraction and it freaked Ooh, me out. Ew. Yeah. It totally scared me. <laughs> like Freon, like, wow, are you testing? Is there even a test to look for residual Freon? I have no idea. Jacqueline, who should take hemp oil? Should Is this something that you should only take if you've got a problem, like you've got anxiety, mm-hmm. you can't sleep? You got irritable bowel syndrome. Those are some Mm -hmm. of the indications. Is it just for people with problems or is somebody who's healthy, should they consider taking uh, a cannabis, you know, say hemp oil cannabis extract or something like that? Now, I'm not talking about somebody for recreational use. I'm Mm -hmm. saying for for health purposes, who should take it? So uh, I'm going to ask Mike, you guys are the functional medicine doctors. I mean, how many people have healthy endocannabinoid systems? How, what's, what's healthy, right? So we haven't really said yet what the endocannabinoid right. system so is. That, that's, so yeah, that, we yeah, might want to start. Yeah, we might want to start with that as a question. Okay, what's the endocannabinoid system, Jacqueline? <laughs> yeah, so the endocannabinoid system is a system that you, all three of us were too old to have learned about this in medical school, all of us, yeah, right? Yeah. So um, it really wasn't discovered until the 1990s. That's pretty recent history. It's a very well-distributed system in the body of three things. So you have receptors, largely the CB1 and CB2 receptor, but there are some other associated receptors that are part of the system. We have endogenous cannabinoids, also called endocannabinoids. So uh, like we've been talking about things like THC and CBD in the cannabis plant, your body actually makes internal chemicals, things like anandamide and 2-acetylglycerol, uh, which are, is also called 2-AG, AG. that bind to our endogenous receptor sites. 
And we make these all over our body or we make them in the brain? All, you make them all over your body. You okay. make them in your central nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, your gut, virtually your entire endocrine system, your whole immune system, your lungs. So most of your cells can make these chemicals. Yeah. They're literally, the receptors are everywhere. The receptors are literally everywhere. So, um, and we have enzymes then that break them down, right? So you, you have receptors, you have the endogenous cannabinoids, and you have the enzymes that break them down after they've been formed. That's the whole system. Sounds very simple. It's actually very complicated. So as a system, it's a homeostatic regulatory system. And it really is almost like the body's internal way of telling things not to get too far out of line in any one direction. So when we look at what the endocannabinoid system does in relation to the nervous system, for example, it modulates like both GABA and glutamate, right? So it makes sure that we don't go too far in any one direction, that we don't get overstimulation and we don't get over relaxation, right? It does very similar things in the endocrine system where it really helps to sort of keep a balance. So when this system gets disrupted, we see symptoms in multiple other systems of the body as they become increasingly dysregulated. And we think a lot of those things may start with dysfunction of the endocannabinoid system, sort of losing its control over keeping that balance. If most of it is endogenous, what are the lifestyle changes one can make? Yeah, what, what screws it up and what makes it healthy? <laughs> well, uh, some of the things that screws it up, stress really screws it up. From my area of specialty, obesity is something that really, really causes a, a serious dysfunction of the endocannabinoid system. And in fact, people have started to go so far as to say that it's possible that some forms of obesity could be defined as primarily a dysfunction of the endocannabinoid system. I don't know if ever, if you remember the drug Ramonavant. Um, yes. It's a very short-lived obesity drug, yeah. but the idea there was, well, was well-meaning and, and poorly executed, I guess, uh, is what we could say about Ramonavant, but was to try and help correct some of that underlying dysfunction with the hope of correcting obesity. So diet is definitely something that can have a huge influence on the endocannabinoid system. So cannabinoids themselves are made from fatty acids and they're made usually on demand as we need them. So if you have imbalanced fatty acids in the body, you're not going to have a healthy endocannabinoid system. So for all the same reasons you want your patients to take fish oil all of those things help to feed and nourish a healthy endocannabinoid system. So, so most, so you think it could be part of a good preventive medicine regimen for most people to take hemp oil? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for most people to be doing something to uh, feed and nourish their endocannabinoid their system, system yeah. is probably of value, you know, okay. and that could be anything from things that are just, you know, lifestyle things that are stress reducing lifestyle things to you know, supplementing cannabinoids from the outside in, as you're referring to. So when we're looking at some of these things that are available in hemp oil, um, looking at something that's ideally broad spectrum so that we're getting a range. I said there's many hundreds of phytocannabinoids. Uh, so looking at maybe providing people with a nice balance of those phytochemicals to help nourish that system. So one last question before our break. Is there any way to measure how well your endocannabinoid system is working? Do we have any markers that are being developed right now? Or is it all based on how you feel? It's largely at this point based on how we feel. Um, unfortunately, I mean, we could, could we get there eventually? Maybe. I think it's going to be trickier than measuring neurotransmitters because these chemicals don't stay around very long. So our endogenous cannabinoids are made on demand and they're broken down very quickly. So 
we can sort of look at the metabolites or the residual parts of what's left when that breakdown happens, but it's, it's very fleeting. And a lot of the things that result from the enzymatic breakdown of endocannabinoids get recycled into other things. So probably we'll be looking at more ways that we can evaluate this that are interactive through either interviews or questionnaires or other things of that kind. Questionnaires. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on that questionnaire. Yeah, but I mean, again, this is a place where <laughs> if we see cannabis become federally legal, one benefit of that is that we will see the ability for research to happen on a federal level. So it's extremely limited in terms of what you can research for any kind of cannabis in the United States. All of the grants are basically controlled by NIDA, and most of them are focused on addiction or abuse and not on health benefits or looking at things like how do we functionally evaluate that? I mean, you know, just from a simple level, a big challenge that we're seeing in states that have legalized cannabis is looking at levels of impairment. Like we don't even know how to test for that. So there's a lot of complexity in kind of testing. And I think we're pretty far away from it still. So now we got to take a short break. And uh, then when we get back, we'll, we'll have some questions for you. foundation for every good health routine starts with a multivitamin mineral formula. But what multi-formula is right for your unique body and lifestyle needs? The team at Thorn has made it simple for you to find out. Just head over to thorn.com to take a multivitamin quiz. Simply answer a few questions about your diet and lifestyle and their medical experts will recommend an ideal multivitamin mineral formula. Treat your body to the health that it deserves with Thorne's foundational health solutions. Learn more by visiting thorne.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Okay, folks, we're back, and now it's time to answer some questions from the community. So, Jacqueline, our first question this week is, what's the difference between THC and CBD? We sort of answered it a little bit, but let's get more specific. So, I mean, I think the part of that question people care about the most is that THC is euphoria producing, meaning it can get you high or however you want to refer to that, and CBD cannot. There's a lot more nuance to this, though, because I really want to say that I feel strongly that both of these compounds have medicinal value and they both have appropriate medicinal uses. That said, people taking THC, particularly as they take higher levels of it, can have impairment from it. And that's something that is a result of how it works. So THC primarily binds to uh, central receptors in the nervous system that are called the CB1 receptor. And it's a very strong agonist for those receptors. And so that is part of how it's having all of this activity uh, in the brain, which is that experience of euphoria or being high. CBD actually barely binds to any of the cannabinoid receptors at all. So it very weakly binds to both receptors, maybe a little bit more to CB2, but that's not primarily what it does. In terms of what it does in the endocannabinoid system, 
CBD mostly acts on one of those enzymes that I mentioned briefly. So the enzyme it acts on is something called FA, which degrades our endogenous cannabinoids. So when you have CBD in your system, it actually inhibits that enzyme. So you more slowly break down your own cannabinoids. So think of that kind of like, it's like the SSRI of the cannabinoids. And I want to add on an observation that I've had when I use mm-hmm. CBD and some people have CBD with just a little bit of THC, not that much. Mm-hmm. It seems to work that much better when there's some combination that doesn't even have to be a lot of THC. That's just been my limited clinical experience. Does that make sense? You mean work for all kinds of problems, Frank, or just certain kinds of problems? Well, for anxiety and sleep in particular. So a little touch, a little kiss of THC you think is good. Well, that's what I've seen clinically. I mean, I don't know if that's real or not. So there is research supporting that, Frank. And it's probably more backwards from how you think about it. So if you think about CBD inhibiting the degrading enzyme, right? That same degrading enzyme also degrades THC, right? So it's going to keep even a small amount of THC around a little bit longer. So those benefits that you're talking about for anxiety, sleep, some of those things may be more of a result of keeping these phytochemicals, giving them a longer life in the system Uh so that they're not broken down so quickly. But CBD also is a a really promiscuous molecule. So the other things it does in the body is it acts on a whole bunch of other receptors, primarily in the nervous system, but also in the immune system and other places. So the reason that you're seeing research on CBD take place on so many different conditions, and I think one reason that people often have an experience of it benefiting things that are seemingly fairly broad spread, like widespread, is that it does a lot more things outside of the endocannabinoid system than it does inside the endocannabinoid system. So Jacqueline, let me jump to a question that's sort of related, which is that there are other chemicals like CBN besides Mm -hmm. CBD or THC. Is there any benefit to these other cannabinoids? And if so, why don't we hear about them very much? I I mean, I know, you know, Mm -hmm. in Colorado, there are companies that promote CBN products, et cetera. Maybe could you say something about that? Yeah. So let me, I'll start with CBN because it's an interesting compound. So CBN was actually the very first cannabinoid that was identified in cannabis. It's actually uh, chemically, it is oxidized THC. So a little history lesson. The reason that was the first one found is that when the DEA was confiscating cannabis from people in the like (laughs) sixties and seventies, and they were holding it in warehouses, that THC was all oxidizing. So when they tested their cannabis, they found old oxidized THC. They found a lot of CBN. So they thought that was the dominant chemical in cannabis. I'm sure none of you have ever experimented with smoking marijuana, but if you ever did and you ever smoked old marijuana, the reason it makes you really sleepy is because it's got a lot of CBN in it that has oxidized from the THC that was there. Just throwing that one out there. So uh, CBN does not have a lot of human research on it, but it's starting, it's pretty easy to obtain because again, we can get a lot of THC from cannabis plants and it's pretty easy to find ways to oxidize it through heat or light exposure or other ways. It is being looked at for some of its benefits. Similar to THC, it is very much uh, euphoria producing. It's more psychoactive. Yeah, I'm not super fond of the term psychoactive because remember CBD 
as a pharmaceutical drug in Epidiolex is an anti-seizure medication, which means it is psychoactive, right? So things that have that kind of a powerful impact on the brain are all psychoactive. So I prefer to say euphoria producing versus non-euphoria producing. Okay, okay. But with, with CBN being more sedating than THC probably. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and I think I've said it a couple of times, there are literally hundreds of cannabinoids. So some of the other ones that people are seeing commonly out there right now, we're seeing some of the acids, so THC acid or, or CBD acid. Those are the natural chemicals that are found in the flower before they've been decarboxylated or before that acid group has been removed. They are also non-euphoria producing, and we have some early data looking at some of their health benefits for things like digestive disorders and inflammation and other things. We're seeing some of the what we call minor cannabinoids like CBG or CBC uh, showing up in research, particularly CBG is one that I think people are starting to have some awareness of. That's actually sometimes referred to as the mother cannabinoid. So both THC and CBD are inside the cannabis plant are made from CBG. It is also not euphoria producing, but does seem to have some of its own health benefits that are being studied, again, mostly in animal models at this point in time. The other one that has shown up a lot that I, I think probably is worth mentioning is Delta-8 THC. Have you guys seen Delta-8 showing up in your states where you are? So Delta-8 THC does not occur naturally in any, it might maybe very small amounts of it occur naturally in the cannabis plant, but um, it is actually a synthetic molecule. Almost 100% of what you see in the marketplace is synthetic and it's synthesized from CBD. And it is, some people call it THC light. So it's not quite as euphoria producing as Delta 9 THC, it's its cousin. But what people are doing is because when hemp was legalized, so many people went into hemp farming that we actually have a massive surplus of CBD in many states. And people figured out that they could synthesize Delta 8 THC from CBD. So it has, we've had a flood of it appear in the marketplace lately. Like, you know, if you start looking now that I've told you about it, you'll see it everywhere. Many people say to me that they take CBD and they do get euphoria. And that's because mm -hmm. obviously some strains will have CBN and some of those euphoria producing. CBD is this broad spectrum, right? It's not just, yeah. okay. And then the, the question from, the, from, from one of our listeners, is CBD addictive? And then mm -hmm. around that, can, can hemp cause you to fail a drug test? So that's sort of all... All right, I'm going to see if I can answer all of these. So, you know, if we want to go back at any point and talk about some of these terms like isolate versus full spectrum versus broad spectrum, yeah. we can certainly talk about some of those, Frank. But I think the point that you're getting at is most products that are labeled or as hemp or CBD probably also have some THC in them. Okay. So if they're following the letter or the spirit of the federal law, they should have very little, but it's still going to be there. Okay, so I'm gonna hold. I want to hold on to that thought, and I'll right. come back to it so we could talk about drug testing. Okay, addictive is a term. So we have we have two things that we look at when we talk about you know what makes drugs potentially you know harmful for people, right? So can they develop dependence and tolerance, or can you develop addiction, right? And I think that we have to differentiate tolerance and dependence from addiction. Okay, so addiction is kind of the dysfunctional side of dependence, right? Where 
people not only have a physiologic dependence on something, but probably also a psychological dependence and removing that substance could cause harm. Okay, so one thing that's very clear, cannabis in all its forms is super non-toxic. Like you don't hear about people overdosing and dying from cannabis. So I think one thing that we can, you know, any of us who were in the area where we were forced to watch Reaper Madness in school, that was me. Um, <laughs> I'm that old. Um, you know, I remember it. We, we got real, we got real scared about it, but there isn't in terms of the risk of, you know, that we see with, with illicit drugs like heroin or cocaine or some of these things, there's not, you know, really an ability for people to overdose in a dangerous way that could kill them. That said, there is toxicity, and we do see something called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Actually, I think, Bob, that's mostly been, almost all the studies on that have come out of your state there in Colorado. <laughs> but it's a real- Hyperemesis? Cannabis hyperemesis system is a, is a so real thing that happens. Up. Yeah, mostly younger people, in fact, develop a syndrome where they are sort of uncontrollably shaking and vomiting. And, you know, again, this is something we could talk about more. Actually, the thing that seems to reverse it is capsaicin pain. So there's a very strong reaction between the capsaicin receptor and the cannabinoid receptors. So in some people, there's, there's something going wrong there and misfiring. But in terms of addiction, so cannabis use can develop dependence. In fact, if, particularly with THC, you will see the common advice for people to start low and go slow. You sell people to start with small amounts and work their way up. And in fact, the dosing instructions for Epidiolex are actually pretty similar to that, which is indicative of the fact that people do develop tolerance to cannabinoids. So their tolerance will tend to go up over time as they continue to take more of them. So if people used to be able to get some euphoria from five milligrams of THC, that's probably going to not give them euphoria at some point in the future. There is a defined uh, definition for cannabis uh, dependence. So, you know, I'll kind of leave that to the psychiatry community to have their professional definition of what that is. But I think the concerns around addiction are, are a lot less than people really need to be worried about. But it is something to be mindful of. We don't really have any evidence for that with CBD by itself. So I would, again, say that's probably more a concern with THC or THC-dominant forms of cannabis. In terms of drug testing, though, this is an important question, and I, I've been asked this question a lot of times. Like, if you're in a job, say you're uh, law enforcement or military or, you know, anything that's going to require you to go through sensitive drug testing, you probably should be cautious of taking any cannabis product, even something that's labeled as CBD isolate, because we really don't have a good answer for this yet. So even small amounts of THC, depending on how you're ingesting it, depending on how much body fat you have, because THC sequesters in body fat, depending on how long you're taking it, all of those factors could potentially play into somebody having a positive drug test. And so what I would say to somebody at this point is, honestly, if your job or financial livelihood depends on never testing positive for THC, you probably shouldn't take cannabis products at all. Not even hemp. No, because hemp by definition has THC in it right? It's Just got a little bit, but small amounts. Yeah. And even if those amounts are under the level of detection from a cannabis lab, so, you know, depending on how sensitive the laboratory test is, it may not show on those tests. But if you're accumulating even small amounts over time, right? right? And there's also some genetics. So there's some pharmacogenomics that play into how people process cannabinoids. I certainly wouldn't want to give a guarantee to someone 
that there was no chance of them having a positive test, even if something had very smaller trace levels of THC. Not if your job is at risk. Yeah, if your job is at risk. There are things out there that advertise themselves as CBD isolates. I would still be careful. If it was my job, I would be careful. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. This has been great. I think we need Very to speak. Insightful. Yeah, we need to speak more about this because I'm sure, Bob, you're using CBD and, and hemp oil and the whole thing. I think it's an important therapeutic tool that we have. So thank you, folks. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jacqueline. And where can our listeners follow more of your work? I've written quite a bit that's available on the Thorn website. I don't have, you know, I guess I'm one of those like people, I don't have like a personal blog or anything like that. You're so, under the radar. Um, oh my am, God, Jacqueline. I am. So you guys will just have to invite me back to talk more. You need to take a little bit more THC or CBD for that. <laughs> <Do you think? laughs> All right. I'll take that as professional advice. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Research. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.